Okay, how many of you, just, just say an amen to all of this, how many of you would say that the majority, the vast majority even, of your memories of your school days were good and were positive and happy? Okay, that's, that's a good portion of us, good portion. I know that's not true for everybody, and I know some things are difficult and different locations and different situations can uh, arise and there are some unhappy things that go on um, depending on your situation. I, uh, as you know, being a military brat, was in a lot of schools. I never really got to put down many roots in school until we got to uh, Owasso and even then, it was a small town, a smaller school district. It, it wasn't extremely small, but um, it, it wasn't huge like it is now. And uh, one of the things that I remember is most of my classmates, we had about 110 in our graduating class. Sounds really, really, really small by more standards, doesn't it? And, uh, but it was, it was decent. And... Um, most of those kids had been in school together from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. How many of you went to the same school from kindergarten through 12th grade? Several of you. I cannot even fathom that. Cannot even fathom it. And uh, I know that going sometimes to a new school was extremely uh, difficult. And uh, you don't know your way around. You don't know what's happening. And... Uh, you know, when you uh, go to different schools, uh, I've been on uh, schools on military posts as well as outside. Um, sometimes when you're in that lifestyle too, you go to school one place for six weeks. I remember in first grade, I was at, uh, in Kennedale, Texas, and uh, I don't remember the name of the school. I remember the teacher, Miss Hill. And uh, she kind of had a funny thing. She said, you ain't going to say ain't in my class. And uh, I thought that was funny. And um, I remember that uh, we had to move. And so I went to most of first grade there. And then I went to the last six weeks of first grade. Last six weeks of first grade in uh, uh, Rogers, Arkansas. And uh, then second grade, we were in Virginia. I went to school in Virginia Beach. Um, John B. Day uh, Elementary School there. And uh, then after that, uh, Dad had to go to Vietnam, and so we moved back to Arkansas. So I was back there at Northside again with uh, Miss Roberts. She was a great teacher. And uh, Miss Roberts, even though it was not kosher to do this, because this is well after the Supreme Court decision, every day she had a stand. We would recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Then she would read a Bible verse or tell us a Bible story. And then all of us together said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy... And we recited the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I remember that made a big impression on me. And then my mother told me, she goes, Well, that's the way we started every day all the way through high school even. I can't fathom anything like that because that was the only time I ever experienced that and I'm sure she could have gotten 
in a lot of trouble for that even then, but she was Arkansas Teacher of the Year the year before I had her, and I don't think she cared just a whole lot about what anybody thought. She was going to do it until uh, she couldn't. I had the opportunity to see her. My grandparents had their 60, I think 63rd wedding anniversary, and we had it in a park close to where my parents lived. And uh, my aunt was there with me, and she goes, oh, look, there's Miss Roberts. And I did a quick calculation and said, she looks really good for 150, because I know she had to have been 75 or 80 when I had her. And uh, so I put all that together. Didn't all your teachers kind of seem old uh, back in those days? And they all kind of looked alike, too. Um, kind of weird. But uh, I remember that. Then in uh, fourth grade, Dad got back from Vietnam, and so we were stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas, and so another school. And then uh, even there on the post, the post had, uh, I think, about three elementary schools, and I got transferred to another one. I don't know why, but... So I was in uh, two different schools there. And then uh, after that, we moved in the middle of seventh grade year. I go from Fort Riley Junior High School to Roosevelt Junior High School in San Francisco, California. And it was an inner city school. It was rough. And uh, I had never been a minority student before. But I was. Most of the students there, there are 2,500 students there. I know that because when they were making out my schedule in the middle of the year, you had to take just whatever's open. And I had to be an office aide to the vice principal, Mr. Falsarella. And uh, he had a big sign in his office, and it said, Mafia staff car, keep a you hands off, and uh, that type of thing. And the first thing I saw when I walked into the school was a great big banner that said, Gung Hei Fat Choi. And uh, I think it meant Happy New Year or something like that. And I go, we're not in Kansas anymore, literally, because that's where I'd come from. And I remember uh, going there, it was dirty, and the playground was an asphalt playground with a brick wall around it and then barbed wire at the top. It looked more like a prison yard. And uh, there were gangs there and all kinds of things. Oh, it stunk so bad. And uh, nobody cared about much of anything. And uh, there were some good teachers there, uh, to be honest. But for the most part, nobody cared just a whole lot. And uh, it was very poor and very rough. There was a, a murder right next door to the school, a shooting uh, one day during lunch, yeah, things like that. And uh, so I was always you know, a little bit ill at ease, a little bit afraid, didn't quite fit in. And every class, you know, you would come in and the teachers would introduce you and this is Greg and he came from Kansas and uh you know so a lot of the kids would call me Kansas City boy and uh I'm not from Kansas City but they didn't care anything that was um east of Oakland was cowboy and Indians as far as they were concerned and uh so they they didn't really it, it was hard to fit in there and um then we moved from there to Berlin and uh in that situation you have to have because of the language and everything you have to have a different school and the department of, of defense had a school for us and so uh, in eighth grade i was in berlin american high school and um it 
obviously included a junior high, and we had some teachers that were German, some that had been brought over from the States, uh, working for the Department of Defense. And so you heard all kinds of things. Um, I'm the only person, I think, that ever flunked art because Mr. Rossi, he was from Boston. I didn't care much for him. And he was an old hippie and just weird, weird, very weird, very artsy and all of that. And um, I can remember he would do things like we had this, you know, weird textbook that we had to read. And he would say, read chapter 13 and design an art project about why the ancient Greeks thought they were alive. Okay, maybe if you're a senior in high school and you're into all of that, eighth grade, I, I don't even know why I'm alive, much less anyone else. And so there was a little group of us that we, we just didn't, you know, fit in with any of that at all. So he made us go back to the back room and clean paper mache that had dried on you know, tables back there that other classes had left. So we're back there scraping it and everything. And uh, these other guys are back there. And I mean, they are bad-mouthing the class and the teacher like you wouldn't believe. And I'm over there scraping away. And you know how it is. got to join in. And so I say, you know, this class might be okay if it weren't for the stupid teacher. Nobody responded. So I added to it. And nobody responded, and the teacher was standing right behind me. So I ended up making an F in uh, art class, and that's supposed to be, you know, the easy A or something. So, you know, some, some things worked out well, some things didn't. Obviously, in all of those situations, I, let a, I met a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, eth ethnically diverse, very diverse and um, people from different parts of the country and different backgrounds, different religions, all of that is kind of the mix in the military. And you can imagine when they uh, find out that your dad is an officer, there was some, you know, separation, and you're an officer's kid, and we lived in different places and different parts of every post we were in and all of that kind of stuff, a little nicer and that kind of thing. So, you, you know, you get some grief from that. And then add to that, then they go, oh, your dad's a chaplain, you know. And, and so then, you know, you're a goody two-shoes and all of that. And so I would try to kind of prove that I wasn't, that I was just like everybody else, that kind of stuff. And my parents weren't always real happy about that. But, you know, you do what you have to do. But during all of that time, uh, I was never confronted with much of anything that was going to be extremely harmful to my life. And uh, during all of that time, nobody ever came up and said, smoke this or take this or drink this or uh, it just didn't happen. And maybe some of the stuff because of who my dad was, maybe it protected me a little bit. I don't know. But uh, after uh, dad decided that um, he was going to get off of active duty, then the question comes, where do we, where do we move? And because my... Uh, uh, uncle had moved from California to northeastern Oklahoma and uh, my dad was real close to him then we thought well we'll go there and we go to this place that uh, who has ever heard of a place spelled O-W-A-S-S-O -S -S -O, Oklahoma what in the world is that and I remember first day that I was there that uh, the first thing I notice is, man, everybody talks really, really weird. 
Okay, I had been in Berlin, Germany, San Francisco, California for two years. And when you're, you know, 14, that's a big chunk of your life. And that's more of how I identified things. And then I, you know, came in here with a bunch of people who, I mean, they talk like a bad movie or um, Maverick, whenever they moved from New York to Hugo, he asked Jeremy, Dad, why does everybody here talk like Andy Griffith? <laughs> I get it. I get it. And I remember I went up to this one guy. His name was Jerry Oberg. Big, big guy. Nice. And um, wanted to know what schedule I had. But he was as country as he could be. And uh, he, I showed him my schedule. And he goes, oh, you got old lady green. She's meaner than a wolf and a bar and a gang fight. I'm like, what in the world? What in the world? I mean, that, it, it, was, it was culture shock, as some of you can imagine. But I ended up loving it there and ended up, you know, uh, getting to know uh, friends and teachers and church and all of that made a big impact on my life. That's where Sammy and I met and uh, Papa Sam was staff evangelist at our church and that was the first church I had been exposed to expository preaching and different things like that as well as, you know, other friends and, um, you know, all of the things that go on like that. But during that time, I had a couple of friends, and they really got into drugs and alcohol and sexual things and all of that. But the strange thing was, they never included me in any of those things. So to this day, I've never had anybody offer me anything or try to get me to do drugs or any of that kind of stuff. And it was kind of a, uh, maybe an idyllic type of thing. They still would uh, give you licks in school, remember that? And uh, you'd, it was common occurrence, you're sitting in class and the teacher's talking and all of a sudden you hear whack, whack, whack out in the hallway. And uh, I did have a, a coach who uh, liked me and he was teaching Oklahoma history. And you have to remember, I didn't know anything about Oklahoma. I didn't know anything at all about Oklahoma. And uh, so learning all of that was new to me. And um, anyway, there was one particular day that uh, I got in a little trouble in class and my friend Van got in trouble too. And the teacher says, out in the hall. Oh, man, you know, when we go out there and, you know, if you, if you ever get SWATs, you don't want to get them by a coach. You, you know what I'm saying? And uh, it was like, why couldn't I have cut up maybe and had one of the lady teachers do it but he takes us out there and then uh, he puts his foot up like this and he goes make it good boys and he hits his paddle on his shoe so he didn't hit us and uh, my friend didn't do it loud enough and the coach that points the paddle and says you either make it sound good so I'm not embarrassed or I'll do the real thing. And so it was, ah, did that. And we go back in class acting like we're really hurting and everybody's going, ooh, you know. That's the kind of stuff. And that was about as bad as it got for the most part, you know. We didn't have school shootings. Uh, we didn't have a lot of the stuff that you hear about now. Um, I don't suppose if you talk to us about anything transgender, I mean, we kind of knew about... Uh, homosexuality but what it wasn't really talked or discussed in class and uh, transgender we knew that there were people that had sex change operations but you know that was so far from us that we didn't really think about it 
fact, I had a biology teacher, Mr. Baker. He was hilarious. Good teacher. Very smart man. He had flown missions in Vietnam as a uh, fighter pilot. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force when he retired. And uh, I don't know how many degrees that he had. And he knew how to teach. And he knew how to relate to us. And he made us laugh and that type of thing. And he uh, would always stand outside of class until the bell rang and we came in. And then he would walk in and he always carried, you know, one of those chalkboard pointer things. Chalkboard. That's, you know, what's that, Dad? You know, it's like a whiteboard except it's green and you know, and some of you are old enough to remember blackboards even. And, uh, but he would come in there and he had that chalkboard pointer. And there was a boy and a girl. They were holding hands together. You know, it's a science class. It's biology. Okay? It's holding hand, they're holding hands. And he comes up and whacks them on the hand. And he goes, we're not to that chapter yet. <laughs> Get it? And he wouldn't let us say sexual or asexual reproduction. We had to say bleepial and ableepial reproduction, you know, that type of stuff. And so it's just funny, that, that type of thing. And uh, I remember those kind of things. I do remember uh, there were fights, and I got in a couple of fights. I didn't really like to fight much. I didn't really look them out. But if it happened, it happened, and I would uh, try to defend myself. But that's about as far as it goes, about as far as it ever went. And when I look back on that, and they talked about in the late 70s, schools being rough and all of the things that were problematic in schools, and then I watch the news and I hear teachers talk and students talk and those type of things. When Jason was talking to us yesterday at the men's meeting, and he talks about uh, having, uh, you know, when you have a child in elementary school that comes up and asks you, what a bisexual is, that's a difficult conversation that you didn't bring up and it's not really on your terms, but you have to address it and you have to answer it. Uh, I don't suppose when I was in third, fourth, fifth grade, if you had asked me anything about that, I, I couldn't have told you uh, anything. That wasn't a part of our culture. That wasn't a part of the landscape. And that included San Francisco. Right? I mean, I wonder about some of those kids I went to school with, what they think and how they live and what they uh, never even came up. That, that school really, other than some of the problems that come from being in an inner city school, it really was not that much different educationally than the other schools that I went to, whether it was Kansas or Owasso or Virginia or Arkansas or any of that. There was a kind of a sameness back in those days uh, about a lot of the schools. And the reason that was is because back then there was kind of a sameness in the American family, wasn't there? And uh, there, there were not just a lot of broken homes, there were some, and there were not a lot of uh, people that lived together outside of marriage. There were some, and it was a burgeoning movement and that type of thing. And uh, it, was, it was kind of idyllic I guess you would say and so I think about the things that are going on today and what kids and what parents and I don't want to leave out what our educators that are Christians are facing as well and I thought about how many times I think that uh, back in the days when I was raised parents seemed to be extremely involved in our lives and had heavy influence in our lives now, we were all rebellious, 
and we all pushed the envelope and we all did those kind of things. But there was a, uh, an innate fear that we had of our parents being upset. And we didn't want our parents upset and we didn't want to pay the consequences. You remember those kind of days? And some of them took it too far, granted. And that's part of why we have the backlash of maybe where we are today. But uh, they were involved and they pretty well knew what we were doing. And um, back in those days, <laughs> I, sound, I sound really old, not I? Back in my day. But it's true. And you can identify with this, a lot of you. Back in the days I was growing up, my parents were not the only ones who disciplined me. If I got disciplined at school, my parents never said, well, I'll show that teacher. They won't. That didn't happen. You know what the rule was? You get in trouble at school, you're in trouble at home. Yeah, you knew my dad. Okay. The same thing was true if somebody from the church, somebody from the school, somebody that my parents knew, a neighbor, if I was doing something, they had every right to come up to me and tell me I had better watch my step or they would tell my parents. Remember those days? And uh, it was kind of like it, you know, they, they say uh, it takes a village to raise a child. We, we had the village. We had the village. And um, that was just kind of the way things worked. I had a senior English teacher that the first day of class, she read the high school student handbook to us. We were seniors. We knew all this kind of stuff. And she was kind of like a drill sergeant. Everybody's sort of afraid of her. And uh, she was one of those that ran as many people as she could out of her class. And then all of a sudden she turned nice. And it's because she wanted to get all of the riffraff out, you know, of the class and keep with people who would be disciplined and serious and that kind of thing. And uh, she was reading the thing out of the handbook and she goes, oh, and by the way, you belong to me everywhere you go. She goes, I don't care whether it's in my class or not. If I catch you acting up at a football game, you will deal with me. If I catch you on a Saturday on Main Street acting up or doing something, you will deal with me. And I mean, she put the fear of the Lord in us. And uh, that's the way people thought back then. I don't suppose anybody thinks like that nowadays. Do you? And uh, that's you know, because of the way things are. I mean, if I were raising children right now, I'm not sure I would want some pervert down the street trying to discipline them. I mean, after all, you don't ever know, do you? And uh, somebody could abuse your child or they could do something that you wouldn't approve of or something. So, I mean, I get it. Things necessarily change. I'm just saying it was different then. And a lot of you can identify with the things that I've talked about because that basically was American education for decades and decades. Am I right about that? Some changes, but most, mostly the same. That is not, and the things that you talked about, your memories of school, are not what is going on. I can almost guarantee you very few of them are what your children and grandchildren are experiencing at school today. It is a battleground. Well, what's the problem? Well, it's the government. Boy, the government's just all messed up. Can I ask you a question? 
Where did you ever find anything in the Bible that even hints at the fact that it's the government's responsibility to raise and educate your children? Well, it's those teachers, and it's all of the things that are going on. Well, I agree. There's work that needs to be done among teachers and school boards and administrators and all. I, I, I get that. A lot of problems. But where did you ever get it that that was the ideal situation? And I think one of the things that is different today is people turn everything over to somebody else. And so uh, it's the church's job to give them religion. Where did you ever find that in the Bible? Well, it's the school's job to teach them reading and writing and arithmetic. And, well, they're getting a whole lot more than that now, aren't they? Some things we don't even really want to talk about. In fact, uh, as you pray... I'm, I'm just really absolutely convinced that as bad as things are now, they're fixing to get worse. I think pedophilia is about to be something that is going to be normalized and then legalized eventually. Because when you have drag queen library story hour for children, there's only one reason you do that, folks. Only one reason. And it's not to make the children more tolerant. There's more to it than that. Mark my words, there is more to it than that. And we got to be on guard. Got to be on guard. But what the Bible tells us hasn't changed. And so just give me a, just very few minutes here and turn to the book of Deuteronomy and listen to what Moses said. They're going into a new land. They're not there yet. They're going in. And Moses said, here's what I want you to do. And he's got children on his heart. And of course, this is the word of God. And I want you to think about when it comes to our children, I'm going to make a point and then read the verse that uh, comes to it. That uh, when we're talking about being parents, grandparents, and all of those type of things, and I would even include uh, teachers and others in this as well that the first thing that struck me is this is a theological issue we try to make everything different we're not going to teach our children religion we're going to let them decide for themselves right that's one of the dumbest things you could ever say they need to be raised by you and your convictions need to be theirs and and for a, a long time your faith and ideas are going to be theirs and then one of these days they have to determine where they are and that's a difficult transition but uh, it's a theological issue notice how it starts off in verse 4 hear O Israel the Lord your God is one now that's primary that was going to be the backbone of Israel there is a God there is only one God and you are accountable to this God see that's what's missing in our society that's what's missing in education Secondly, I want you to notice it's a lifestyle issue. You see, we can pound our kids. I remember, oh, a friend of mine, I was at his house. It was in Fort Riley, Kansas. His dad was a warrant officer, so he lived in our neighborhood, and I was over at his house. And his dad was a hard-drinking, hard-living warrant officer in the Army. And... Uh, I remember they were watching TV, and uh, it's probably CBS News, Walter Cronkite, and they were doing a thing about the uh, Jesus movement in California. These hippies were getting saved. And boy, this guy just hit the ceiling 
those long-haired hippie freaks. How dare they get baptized and claim that they're saved looking the way that they look. It's sacrilegious. And there he was saying words that I won't repeat and all of that, and yet he was claiming to something was sacrilegious. You see, that kind of thing is very uh, confusing, shall we say, to children. And we talked about that this morning. It's got to link up. Notice what Moses says. It's a lifestyle issue. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus told us that is the first and the greatest commandment, right? And so if your life doesn't show that you love the Lord and they're not seeing that, why would they ever be impressed or impacted by it? And we're losing our impact because of our compromise and hypocrisy. But it really boils down to this. We just don't love Jesus like we should. Number three, okay? It's also an obedience issue. He says, and these words that I command you, look at that word, command you today, shall be on your heart. No option. This, this is from the Lord. This is Moses, the leader, the general, telling you what you were supposed to. You will make this happen, in, in a sense, is what he is saying. And so it's an obedience issue. And how many people today don't really want to obey the Lord? They want their kids not to get, uh, their, their daughter not to get pregnant. They don't want their kids on drugs. They don't want them hanging around with the wrong people. But they don't want them too committed to, they don't want them to be a missionary or anything like that. I mean, God forbid that that would ever happen. Just keep them interested, entertain them, keep them in church. That's what Isaac's job description is, according to a lot of people. How horrible. No wonder. No wonder we're seeing big groups and big youth groups and big churches and very little impact. We're not being obedient. This is for parents, right? Number four, it's a generational responsibility. As you get older, it's not your responsibility to check out. It's your opportunity to step up. You finally know something. You finally have life in perspective. And the Bible says here, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, who is supposed to do that? Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, older women, Titus 2, older men, Titus 2 in the church. All of this kind of stuff is supposed to happen and it's supposed to be happening. And then what was the descriptor there? Diligently, diligently. And some people are so haphazard. They're very diligent about teaching a boy how to throw a football or how to fish, but not very diligent about teaching them to love Jesus or what the Bible says or something disconnect there and then he tells us how we're supposed to do this and he says and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates so how do we do this well, it's interesting, the very first thing he says is not at church, not at school, not any place like that, not at the synagogue, not at the temple, not at the tabernacle, at home. At home. Everybody, every child is supposed to be a homeschool student even if they go to public school. Why? You're the teacher. You teach them these things at home. And then notice he said it's not supposed to be just like, well, we have our set time for devotion. You can do that if you want to. 
I was always careful about that because my children had to be here in church and they had to hear me you know, every time that I spoke. And I was concerned that if I enforced that on them, now we're going to do it at home too. Boy, they would really rebel because I felt like that we were kind of targets for that anyway. But notice that what Moses said, it sounds almost more like an informal type thing. When you lay down, when you wake up, when you sit, when you're walking, when you're coming in and out, just in life you are supposed to teach your children about Jesus in everyday life. Everything is an opportunity. We don't have enough money to pay the electric bill. There's an opportunity to teach your children how to depend upon the Lord. We've got problems. Somebody is sick. There's an opportunity to teach your children about the Lord and about prayer and those type of things. You see what I mean? We use everyday situations. Even their hurts. Somebody called me a bad name. You know what Jesus had to say about that? And you talk to him about what Jesus said about blessing those who curse you and those kind of things. It's always got to be going like that. And it's uh, bedtime and it's in the morning. In other words, it's an all-day thing, not just Sundays and Wednesdays, not just at a certain devotional time. This is our life, folks. And this is where we're falling apart. And notice that he said that thing about frontlets and binding them on your hand. Well, we're not going to do that because we don't have that type of custom. But I think what he means is that it ought to be something that is clearly identified. It doesn't have to be guessed at. It doesn't have to be hinted at. It doesn't have to be searched for. It is bold and upfront in our lives. Our kids know we belong to Jesus. We are Christian people. Now, we don't want to be mean when we do that. And we don't want to hammer them over the head with all of it. We just want to talk about it, tell our stories, share our testimonies, let them know about all of those things, and let them just simmer in it during their childhood years. They just simmer in it and simmer in it. And you know what happens to something when you just let it simmer or whatever the term might be? It gets tender. It gets tender. And we want to uh, do that with our children. And it's supposed to be visible and something that is also, notice it said, mark your gates with it. This is a home that belongs to the Lord. This is a home that worships Yahweh God. Well, you can do that by putting up scripture pictures on your walls and different things like that. So that it's something that is, here's the word that I wrote down, make it inescapable. Inescapable. Because you don't want it to where they come to church, do the things here, and then they go home, and then there's nothing there to remind them. It's something that uh, is inescapable in their lives, that they always see it. What will they do with it? I don't know. I don't know. Some of them may respond well, some of them may not. I don't know. I I don't predict that type of thing. And I can't give you, if you'll do A, B, and C, you're going to get, boom, a Christian child. I, I, I can't do that, and I won't do that. That's not right. But it is the right thing to do because it's what God has commanded us. Now, I'm going to ask you to pray tonight, uh, and we'll leave in just a, a little while, not only for your own children but somebody else's children because there are a lot of kids in the schools that they don't have anybody to really care about them. They don't have any parental guidance. They come from a home where nobody cares and maybe they're abused or maybe their parents are on drugs if they have both of their parents, maybe they're in a foster system or something like that. Think about all of the kids and all of the things that they're going through. Think about all of the temptations they have that you never heard of. Think about uh, what all happens 
just because of the internet and just because of the cell phone and that type of thing that you never would have you know known anything about that's their life that's their life now i want you to think about the teachers and the people in administration their hands are so tied nobody can take them in the hallway and give them three licks you know and uh, you uh, think about all of the threats of lawsuits that hang over their heads and all of that type of stuff every single day you need to pray for them and you need to especially pray for the ones that are christians christian uh, teachers and educators need to be very 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 wise jesus said we're to be wise as serpents but harmless as doves that's the society in which we live and so you need to pray for them you need to really pray for them and uh, remember what's going on and so you were handed tonight a paper and uh, what I'd hoped we could do tonight is just uh, take about uh, 10 or 15 minutes like we uh, do for our fellowship nights and then have you all go out and go uh, onto the property of a school and uh, pray for the students and the teachers and faculty and all that kind of thing and maybe do a prayer walk if uh, you could and if you can't it doesn't matter just go in the parking lot pull your car up and pray for them and in fact I'm going to say this you might want to do that even on the way home tonight and certainly this next week uh, go and pray pray at your kids school they say the Supreme Court won't let anybody pray in school they can't stop us from praying and uh, you know people say in 1963 we threw God out of school you don't throw God out of anywhere he's an omnipresent God okay but if we are aware and we are praying about these things, it'll change our lives and the supernatural power of God will work in those situations. And uh, I promise you, if you do that once, it probably won't be the last time you think of it. It'll be on your mind. And there's some guidelines there for, you know, how to pray. Those are not exhaustive. Um, just a few things just to kind of spark your imagination about uh, how you should pray. Then up here, we've got 50 books, and uh, we want to make a challenge because we have different things from the people that are involved in education in our church, and they have turned in different prayer requests. And so you can pray for our church members who are involved in education. And uh, we want to see if we can get 50 church members to take this and to pray for these people and to pray for them regularly. You say, what if we get 60? We can run off 10 more. What if we get 100? We can run off 50 more. We'll do whatever we have to do. But we would like to have at least 50 of you tonight to come up and to get one of these. And so I'm going to dismiss you, but we're going to do it after we have a word of prayer. And so what I would like for us to do is gather up here at the altar. Okay? And uh, those of you who would like one of these books, they're right down here. And uh, then after we pray, Chad's got uh, an exciting presentation for us tonight, okay? So come on up and, and join me. Take one of these if you feel so um, impressed. And please don't take it and just stick it in your Bible and forget about it. We're, we're, we're serious, very serious about all of this. And your children and grandchildren are too precious for us just to mess around with all of this. This is, this is real. This is our future.
Got a few more. And don't be afraid that, uh, like if there's a school you feel impressed to go to and pray for them, don't, don't be afraid to maybe go to their website and uh, email the principal and say, hey, I've just had you on my heart and I've been uh, praying for you and praying for the students. Uh, they usually will appreciate that. Okay. And if you uh, are thinking about teachers and people in our own church, you know, send them a text every once in a while. Maybe uh, call them. Let them know. That really is kind of funny. <laughs> you can laugh. It's okay. Pam won't mind. <laughs> okay. Got a few more. Got a few more. Okay, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Okay. Pray for somebody. Pray for a school. Pray for a student. Pray for a teacher. Pray for schools in another city. Pray for schools in another state that come to your mind. Maybe you went to some of them, like I named. Dear Father, I think about the song we used to sing when we were little kids. Jesus loves the little children. And it says red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in His sight. Well, they ought to be in our sight as well. And we ought not just have, like so often we hear about children that are sort of abandoned, throwaway children, just put in the system and expected to survive. Oh, Father, our hearts break at the lack of parenting and the irresponsibility and all of the things that, uh, that go on. Think about just recently a man that committed suicide after murdering his three children. And we hear about those kind of things. And that grandmother here not too far from, from us who uh, allegedly killed her granddaughter. We hear about things like that. We don't understand it. We just don't get it. And so, Lord, we don't know where else to turn because the psychologist doesn't have the answer. The government for sure doesn't have the answer. But, oh, Lord, you do. And uh, we want to pray, Lord, that you would please heal our land. And I really believe that if you are going to heal our land, I don't know if you will or not, but if you are, you'll probably do it through another generation besides ours. And so we pray for that. And whatever we can do to help children, to show them the love of Christ, to teach them, to educate them, to minister to them, to love them, to befriend them, whatever we can do in a godly and a holy way, we want to be able to do it. So open doors. Open doors. And open their hearts. And let us be uh, tender toward you and also be tender toward them as well. What a, what a rotten world that they have inherited. And so we pray, Lord, for revival and awakening and help us. Help our children's ministries. Thank you so much for 
uh, Dale Lewis and all of the people that work in Awana. Thank you for Bethany and for all the people that work in the nursery. Thank you, Lord, for all of our children's Sunday school teachers and preschool teachers. Thank you, Lord, for Shanley and Melissa and all of the things that they've done to uh, help our children to learn about Jesus. Thank you for Bible school workers and, and uh, those who uh, do camp and those who go to camp and run camp and uh, all of those kind of things that we're able to do. Thank you for all of that. Now we pray your blessing on it. And we pray your blessing upon all of those in our church who are involved in education. Amen, church? Amen. Protect them. We know that uh, school can be a dangerous place now. We've seen the shootings and different things like that. Please protect them and protect our districts around here. We also want to pray you would make them wise. And we want to pray that you would make them to where they would be invaluable. That uh, even though their Christian beliefs may be a little out of step with everybody else, nobody can doubt their integrity. Nobody can doubt, uh, doubt their love for children. Nobody can doubt their excellence and things. I pray you would just build them up in those kind of things. Help our Christian students to be able to stand firm and protect them from the temptations that uh, they were going to be subject to and help them to witness for Christ and bring their friends to church and share Jesus with other people. I pray you would make them bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for our students in our church that are lost, we pray for their salvation. Bless uh, Isaac and Jenny and bless their witness to our teenagers and we pray for many of them to be saved and we pray Father that you would bless those who are lost in our school system as well lost teachers, lost faculty members lost students, oh Lord that they might hear the gospel and that they might be saved would be our prayer. So Lord take these things and let us take up arms and be serious about this this is our assignment as a body of believers, to go to war on behalf of the children that you have given us. And we pray this for your glory and your honor in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Brother Chad.